0: Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Paul Huang a research fellow at the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation and a journalist based in Taipei who focuses on defence and politics. We'll discuss the fallout from Tsai Ing-wen's meeting with Kevin McCarthy in the United States and the outlook for Taiwan's presidential election in January. Paul, thank you for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Katie. Thank you for having me.
0: So we last spoke in an amazing cafe in Taipei where we had, I don't even know how to describe the amazing food we ate. It was some sort of fried breadsticks wrapped in pancake. It was amazing. But one of the things I took away from our conversation there was just how much in general we, particularly in the foreign media, are missing outside Taiwan about where the discussion is, where the conversation is in Taiwan itself, and how people there are looking at the current situation. So I wanted to start by asking you, firstly, I should point out that we are recording this as Tsai Ing-wen is still in the United States, and Ma ying the former president and member of the rival KMT, is still in China. So we don't yet know what reaction there will be from Beijing to Tsai's activities here. But as a starting point, could you talk a little bit about how those visits are being watched in Taiwan and how much attention or not people are paying to them.
1: Well, with regard to President Tsai's transit through the U.S. and her visit to Taiwan, several du- diplomatic allies in South America, Central America, her visit is not being discussed as widely as like she and her administration at home, just because people, there's nothing new coming out of it. She's not meeting with Biden. She's not meeting with Anthony Blink- Blinken. She's not meeting with any high level US official. She's not making any breakthrough. So that's the that's pretty much the end of it. She's the Taiwanese public have for years seen these kind of overseas visit visits to Taiwan is very few diplomatic out And that reaches really this useful, the limit of its useful. I'm sorry to say It's just that people are not buying that show anymore. The people know we are losing them. at the a speed that they never seen before. Something once every year or even two every year. And in her visit to transit transits through the US, song to Kevin McCarthy isn't gonna boost her support domestically anyway. On the other hand, President mind Joe's visit me unlike many other analysts or observers, that also didn't have much. Expectation just because he's not really a shark caller in Taiwan. He's a former president. He's he's a member of the KMT. Yes, but it's questionable what kind of influence status the status he has within the KMT. He's not a major player anymore. then that, that that is for sure. However, in the past few days, he's visited to, to China. His speech at University of Hunan. He's his talks at various places. Meeting meeting with the Chinese Communist Party officials. Chinese government official. He has been building a steam. The kind of things that he's been saying is uh, moving the goalposts, right? or it is what they think is, are, are like the goalposts, such as mentioning the Taiwan's official name, the Republic of China in, in China, which is, if you're not familiar with Taiwan's history, the, 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 the Republic of China is something that the People's Republic of China, seeing as the KMT's the old regime, right? So it, was, it used to be politically sensitive. But now he's saying that out loud in China, and he's um, saying things that seem to move, push the boundary of what's, what the CCP would, uh, would allow him to say, and uh, his engagement with some Chinese students there uh, during his speeches were seem genuinely interesting and popular there, not just there, but also in Taiwan. So comparably, that uh, Ma is, I would say, at this point, seem to be, be have a more successful trip than Tsai Ing-Wen. even though so, he's not a president, he's not running for any off- office at this stage. But this just goes to show that the, the these competition between China and the U.S., on the other, on one hand, the DPP government, they bet every, pretty much everything on the U.S., and we see how the, that 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 didn't turn out quite well. On the other hand, mind Zhou, right, just a retired politician. Just a private citizen seem to have some success with engagement to to, with Beijing, and that 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 is for the Taiwanese that is that that looks quite pessimistic because uh, especially for the DPP supporter because they they would expect higher better support more stronger support from the Biden from Washington but it, it just didn't happen.
0: If we take a step back and look at the alternative visions that both the DPP, Tsai Ing-wen's party, and the KMT are offering for Taiwan's future. Do you see those sort of being crystallized in these visits of, is Tsai effectively setting out a path that involves being close to the West, relying on the US? And Ma, on behalf of, although as you point out, now former president and certainly not lightly to run for office again on behalf of the KMT, offering this vision of what could happen if there was a better relationship with China.
1: Even the DPP, even Tsai Ing-wen, since even uh, as early as 2016, when she took office, so they have been saying that we don't, we don't necessarily oppose good relations with China. We want dialogue with China. We want engagement with China. However, the be- Beijing refused to talk to them. Now, why? Because they see them, they see Tsai, they see DPP as having an agenda that is pro-Taiwan independence, digital independent. Even so, for Tsai Ing-wen's administration at least, it's just not the case. She had no such agenda that we can be sure. She has done literally nothing to move the goalposts in terms of Taiwan's jure independence. Any, anywhere more than there, there already was. But because of this preconception that Beijing had, and also because Beijing had no reason not to incent, it doesn't need to talk to Thai government as much as Thai needs to talk to them, so they can choose who they talk to. And so you see what, how it turned out, that Beijing is using its relation with Taiwan this is cross relation as, it's like a veto saying, we don't like this government in power, so we're not going to talk to you. And that really hurt. The DPP and Tsai is in the long run in the last few years.
0: And Tsai is term limited. So she, as you said, came to power in 2016, but will stand down at the next election. Can you give us a sense of how closely contested that election is likely to be and whether it's whether at this stage it looks like the DPP will stay in power or if there's a real chance that power could change hands and that we could see a KMT president elected in January.
1: Both parties, both KMT and DPP, they're still in the process of their primaries. The KMT is still hasn't even discern, determined how the primary is going to be. With DPP, that's going to, the, the Sing is going to be the current vice president, Lai Xinger. But there are a lot of things we don't know. For example, KMT which candidate is going to come up. And just today, Terry Guo, the chairman of FASCON, who attended to round for president in 2020, unsuccessfully, he, came, he announced that today that he's seeking KMT's nomination as well. And he's a very viable, he's a very popular candidate, so that's going to change things within KMT. If not him, then it's probably going to be Ho Yo Yi, which is a new, the mayor of New Taipei City. But again, the different candidate, different lineup, they would have very different result, very different perception among the public. So it's too early to say. But my 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 take is the wh- whoever comes up next is not going to well have to inherit everything that the Tsai government has done in the last eight years, and Taiwan has not been doing well strategically, diplomatically. We lose all these number of diplomatic allies, and strategically, Taiwan is in a far worse spot position than several years ago. So it's not longer a partisan issue. It's like whoever is in power had to fix this, how to fix this very imbalanced power relation with with China, and find a strategy out of it. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
0: Hi, I'm Anoush, and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think there is a balance for Beijing to strike in its response to size meeting with McCarthy in terms of if it reacts very strongly, is there a danger that it could push voters who, as you say, are now a little bit re-examining the DPP and their record over the last eight years? If Beijing reacts too strongly, does that actually help the DPP's case push voters Towards them, what do you think their the calculation will be?
1: For starter, I don't think Beijing's calculation is based on these kind of the calculation on when to actually move on to Taiwan to attack Taiwan to to you to go to that final military option. That I don't think that decision rests on Tsai's visit to some country or her talk with some U.S. politician. That's not how Beijing makes its decision. It, they don't want to be pushed. They don't want to be pressured into doing something as big as invading Taiwan. That on that one, they have their own timetable. Which again, I don't have no idea. Nor do any of these U.S. observers, analysts, or even officials who claim they have some magical number twenty, twenty-five, twenty-seven. No stone exists. Only Beijing, only decision maker in Beijing know, and oh, but, but we know that the, the that calculation is determined by factors that really more have to do with fundamentals. The fundamental mean say military balance between Taiwan and China across the Strait. Or how, or the imbalance, or how imbalanced that is. We know the Chinese People's Liberation Army has already surpassed Taiwan's military in both quantity and quality. But by how much, right? They increase their edge over Taiwan every year. At some point, that's going to be. They're going to look at it and say, "This is probably enough. We don't need any more." Uh-huh. And not just edge over Taiwan, but over the United, but over the United States as well. Some people would say catching up to the United States. But in many areas, the Chinese POA already surpassed the U.S. military or the U.S. allies' military. So Japan's South Defense Force or even countries like Australia, That they, the, the, those POA... Today they have; they're more capable, they're more numerous, they are more better positioned to strike than the U.S. and its ally in the region. That's just a fact. So I think that the, as the military imbalance increases, uh, that that the it is it the it, it becomes more and more likely that China will strike. They will not be like reacting to say Tsai's meeting with McCarthy, and just because of that, then they attack. Not not really how they made the, that decision.
0: You write a lot about the military, I have a lot of expertise in this area. I think from, particularly from where I am here in the US, there is this perception that the Ukraine war has marked this really important change and there is now a concerted shift taking place and Taiwan is moving rapidly towards asymmetric capabilities. It's building up, it's training, it's undergoing reforms. But from what you see there, How accurate a picture is that? What do you think is the reality of the pace at which those reforms are taking place?
1: Oh, it's it's all talks. There is no change. There's not even symbolic change. All all that we have seen, it's just public relations. They create something to mislead international media, to mislead foreign observers and concerned parties such as the United States government, uh, the American Institute in Taiwan, showing that Supposedly, they're showing them that Taiwan has made some changes in improvement when there's not. They are still doing the exercise the same way they have been doing it just 10, 20, 30 years ago. There's nothing has been changed. They're still pretending the POA today is the same as the POA t- 20, 30 years ago. As for other things that they have they have put in their propaganda, such as the re- re- reform on the reserve system, I can tell you there's no reform in the reserve system. Everything is still the same. It's the same, it's the same thing that we have seen over all these years. The Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense and the politicians in charge, which right now is the Taiwan government, they are not committed to reform. That I speak, I made this statement based on my years of research and observation as a defense analyst. I have not seen any change in that direction that, that, that will matter. I don't see, I don't see a commitment there. I don't see they're sincere. And I see the problem being the ruling government, the Thai government. It's just not committed. It's all about show. Sure. So they talk tough, but they don't act tough. And that's the fundamental problem with Taiwan's defense and security today. There doesn't seem to be any adult in charge of Taiwan's military and security apparatus. There's no one that that, that is there to, to outline the strategy. We know the military balance is going up the imbalance is going off the chart. Something needs to be done. Uh, so some people, some responsible and smart people have come up and spoken out about this. They have proposed out of the various alternatives and strategies such as they call like, the overall defense concept and another other framework. They have their pros and cons, they have their uh, uh, strengths and weaknesses, but Those people, they are are sincere people that want to propose these kinds of changes. The the, the issue is the Ministry of National Defense and Taiwan's government, they don't take any of this seriously. For them, at the end of the day, it just all comes down to press release, a parade for media, and some Facebook posts, and to get the politicians elected in the next election.
0: And that's all they care. I think looking at this from outside Taiwan, there is a tendency to reduce the main issue to be fundamentally security, first, second, third. What should we understand about actually where security ranks in terms of voters' concerns? What the other important issues that people are looking at as they approach the next election are likely to be?
1: I think people are, despite government's best efforts in misleading the public over the years, I think more and more people are beginning to see the things are not what they have been told. What our polls found a lot last year that more people say that they have no they are not confident in Taiwan military's ability to resist a Chinese invasion. And then the more the majority of people also say they are not confident Taiwan can stand on its own. They not defend against China if the United States doesn't intervene on time. and in addition to that there are also other indications such as then most majority of people they don't believe that the united states will intervene militarily to defend taiwan if china attack so all these polls they told they told us that the taiwan's public they are more and more aware becoming aware that there is a problem there that they know they knew that China has been growing economically, technologically, and militarily, and something is not going right with Taiwan's military, Taiwan's preparation. And so at some point that this public leg of confidence is going to Taiwan, Taiwanese public's political preference. And they're going to say, since our partition just don't, they don't, they're not saying they don't seem to be serious. They don't seem to be serious in fixing our military, then maybe we need to consider what we are voting for, what we are calling for politicians to do, politically, right? And that's a, a really bad thing because we know the majority of Taiwan Taiwanese public, majority position is they want Taiwan to be independent or in long term. Majority of Taiwanese say they are Taiwanese. They're not Chinese. They're not Chinese or Taiwanese, just Taiwanese. And therefore... and response for, for Taiwan's politicians, a responsible thing to do will be to see their opinion for what for their consensus for what it is and to formulate a strategy to defend to, to if not to pursue a long-term independence at least to build out some sort of capability so Taiwan can stay like this forever and not be taken not be subjugated by China but that's not what the current government is doing Talking tough and doing nothing like help.
0: Unfortunately, we are out of time, so let me thank you so much for your expertise and say thank you to Paul Huang for joining me today. Thank you, Katie. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard, thanks for listening, and until next time. Acast, in Befail.
1: Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi er skidetræt af alle de der podcasts, og forklarer meget der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulige ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet et vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjovt med at have den her vidunderlige